trigger warning, trigger warning. This is a reminder, you have got a trigger. <laughs> Do you know what your trigger is? It's that soft spot, that bruise that makes you see red when it gets pushed. And I don't know what your trigger is. Only you know that. This podcast strives to have thoughtful conversation about adult issues, but I'm not a professional, and I would describe lots of the topics here as things that would trigger someone. So if you find yourself being triggered by any of the issues that we talk about here, I'm asking you now to please take that opportunity to simply find something else to listen to. Also, this is not professional advice, ever, (laughs) even when we talk to professionals. This is only casual conversation that is meant to promote for mindfulness and examine our own egos. Thanks. I still am just such a huge admirer of Tom Ford, and I I had the opportunity to meet him once, and I wrote him this little letter about how much his film meant to me. So yeah, like all the stuff you desire and are lying about, it's like, it's, you want it to be true, right? So like when you're manic, it's like, you're still you, but in your mind, you're like the super version of you that can walk into a bar and and buy everyone a drink and is actually gonna meet Tom Ford. And you, I guess the delusion is you believe it so concretely that anyone who tells you otherwise, it's like, you just you're like get out of here because you're 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 killing my vibe or you're dropping into my dream and like reminding me it's a dream and I don't want to be reminded because I want to live in this fantasy 24 seven yo. Your necessary delusion. Your necessary delusion. Why do you keep lying to yourself? Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. I'm your host, Matt LeBlanc, and I'm feeling a lot of pressure to address the Friends Connection. (laughs) And I believe it's completely self-generated. This is Your Necessary Delusion, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. And if you are just joining us for the first time, this is season two, delusional debut, folks. If you have not listened to season one, I would invite you to go back and explore some of those epic everyday stories of success and redemption, because we found some real doozies. Doozies, that's how I'm starting out the new season. (laughs) Anyway, brand new season, all new delusions. Our storyteller today is Peter, and although his delusions start off familiar enough, it is really a bit of black matter earth monster magic that brings them to life. That's really just what I say when I don't understand science. Black matter earth monster magic. My words. (laughs) But we'll get there when it's time. The most value that I get out of listening to these stories is when I'm able to find myself in them, as cringy as it can be sometimes. But enough of me. Here's Peter. So I was in Minneapolis, which I say is pretty hip for the Midwest, but you know, one step away from the suburbs. You know, my dad was a writer. Uh, Storytelling was always something that was really important to us. Um, And his sister was a somewhat famous actress. And, um, 
I just remember seeing her on like an episode of the Avengers or something when I was a kid. And there was something so magical about, I don't know, the ability to tell a story and cast a spell and hold someone's attention. And I just thought that was like the coolest superhero power anyone could have. And like, even as a kid, you know, going to the movies, watching the Oscars, um, being in plays, like there was something just kind of magical about bringing a story to life. And so from a very early age, that to me was something that I just had to do because I had seen people I love do it. I would have been in what, like fifth grade and I, I really wanted to be a movie star and I really wanted to be like a famous artist. This famous artist illusion may feel like it's becoming well-trodden territory for us, but hang on tight because Peter's story goes to places that we haven't quite been before. I made little handwritten storybooks and I made my poor sisters be in these little horror movies that I would make. But even in his humble beginnings, he was already thinking forward about what these endeavors would mean about him as an adult. When I was older, I would look back and it would be like proof that I was on the right path. I just felt really determined to be like a famous and beloved artist and to be known for being kind of unusual. And I think as a kid, I just wanted to feel that what I was doing was important and that my life had meaning. This resonates with me, and it strikes me how many of us believe that we need to create something new and impressive in order to be loved, rather than putting our efforts into being a good friend or focusing on the way that we express our love to the people around us. We just had a dad who loved telling stories. He was a poet. We'd have fires in the backyard. He'd have students over, and they would go around and read their poetry. It's a little bit of the boulevard there um so i just always saw people kind of you know sort of enamored with the power of storytelling and writing a good story is like putting together a puzzle each piece carefully placed to reveal its truth in just the right moment peter became fixated on the power of storytelling and all of the accolades that came along with it what was being valued in your house growing up how did that value influence the path that you took well, I was very like outgoing and like kind of friendly and got along well with everyone. And then I went to an arts high school where you just took like two academic classes in the morning and then your afternoon area was just it was literary arts. So you just did lots of writing. The school itself was pretty unique. You know, no sports teams. It was like a statewide school where kids from small towns could live in the dorm there and it was cool to be gay. And it was just kind of this great experience as a young artist. And I think it kind of solidified my identity and, and desire to pursue a, a life in the arts, you know, versus my other cousins who are lawyer, doctor, Wall Street, etc. The comparison is important because I think that most of us are clocking it as we go. I was probably like 16 and just kind of embraced this role of being like a writer, an outsider, like not like I'm too cool to hang out with everybody else, but like I kind of relish that I like being alone and I'm kind of like a lone wolf. And I think I really identified with lots of archetypal stories about writers and rebellious artists. And so these were the stories that Peter started manifesting in his real life. A couple years later, only three credits away from graduating college, he decided he had done enough. So you had three courses left to finish. And I just kind of blew right. it off. Like I was like sleeping with this guy that summer. And I think if you skipped a class more than three times, you automatically failed it. So I think I just like failed out. He didn't tell his family. No use in disrupting their delusion. In fact, the school still let him walk in the graduation ceremony. They let me walk because I was like going to take these summer classes. Da -da delusion. So I was like supposed to graduate like 
eight weeks after. I still had the party. I still got all the gifts, but never got the degree. His father, the writer, was a college professor, and it was very important to him that Peter graduate. But he didn't know any better. In fact, it would be six years before he learned the truth when Peter would let it slip in the midst of a giant fight. So for now, he had no reason to believe that anything was wrong. I mean, from his perspective, he went to the ceremony, they threw the party, he patted Peter on the back in congratulations, and they toasted to the delusion of Peter's diploma. But in reality... I just bought a one-way ticket and went to Europe. I was living in Italy for a while, and I was in the Netherlands. I was in Amsterdam at the time. There's a lot of strange behavior anyway, so I think a lot of people just thought I was, you know, on something. So nobody there knew me, so it was really easy to kind of just be this quirky, talkative guy. I started making this little zine that I would photocopy and give out to people. Zine, short for magazine like a homemade little pamphlet of images and messages and movie reviews and art that Peter found important, like people needed to see it. He would pass it out on the street, and he was feeling really good. Great, actually. Essentially, I just started to sleep a lot less, and I had a lot more energy, and I'm not a, you know, I'm not a drug user. Not a drug user. This energy he was manifesting was natural. It felt like maybe he was on the verge of creative genius. So I just felt really good and I started to feel really creative and it started very gradually, like the ramping up of thoughts. What was the mission of your zine? I have all these thoughts and they're great and I need you to hear them. It's kind of like a calling card, like, hey, this is who I am and this is what I'm about. Like, this is the best movie. You got to listen to this song. You got to read this poem. I was taking a lot of black and white photography and making a bunch of photocopies and just just giving it out to people. And my big vice was like spending money. Like I would go into a bar and be like, I'm buying everyone a drink. I'm going to buy a new suit and wear it once and then give it to a homeless person. And um, <laughs> did you, you know, do that? I did. And I, um, you know, it was kind of a lot of fun. But the racing thoughts and the euphoria started to kind of give way to some delusions where I was sort of convinced things were happening that weren't happening. Like what? You know, like I would walk into a bar and I was convinced that everybody was talking about me or making fun of me, kind of these little paranoid things. Oof, I've been there. I ended up, I didn't have a place to stay. I had given away my passport, my wallet, all my belongings. Tell me how you give away your passport and your belongings. What is the motivation behind that? How do you do that? Uh, like, I don't need my passport anymore. I'm just going to live in Amsterdam the rest of my life. I don't need stuff. I can just wear the same outfit every day. Um, or this homeless guy really needs this expensive camera that I bought. Like, you just kind of make it up as you go along. But in the moment, it makes total sense, right? The delusions of a 22-year-old artist living abroad. Or was it something more than that? Somehow I ended up staying with this woman for a few days because she heard I needed a place to stay. And she woke up in the middle of the night and I was like rummaging through her stuff. And in my mind, I was trying to organize this like intense collection of shoes she had. As if that was a reasonable explanation. But as someone coming down the stairs in the middle of the night, she thought I was trying to steal from her. So she kicked me out. I just kind of stormed out and I was yelling at her and screaming at her. And she said she was going to call the cops. And I was trying to explain that I was just, you know, trying to help. No shoes, no socks. It's snowing. I'm just wandering the streets of Amsterdam. You know, no cell phone, no wallet, no nothing. No passport. I think they call it like bottoming out in rehab, like the moment of clarity when you're like, ooh, like this is bad. 
And so I kind of had this realization that like this wasn't normal behavior. Like I kind of was able to step outside of it. And um, this guy came out of this salon and asked me if I was okay and gave me a pair of shoes. And, you know, somehow I was able to remember a friend's phone number because phone numbers there are like 13 digits long. Um, this friend picked me up and uh, helped me get in touch with my family, helped me get an emergency passport at the U.S. Embassy, helped me get back to the States, where I just wouldn't shut up. I just kept talking and talking. And my parents took me straight to the emergency room and they said, you know, he's bipolar and he's having a really intense manic episode. It was a manic episode, a chemical imbalance. And this was the first time Peter or his family ever learned he was bipolar. I really didn't know what any of it was about, but I just remember being like, screw you guys, I'm not on drugs, I'm not crazy, I'm just happy. And like, it was very, um, it was tough. Suddenly pulled from his independent Amsterdam fantasy, he was back in his parents' house in Minneapolis. And then I got on a bunch of meds and then I was like really depressed and the meds have side effects like constant hunger and like weight gain or like no sex drive. And it was very challenging to go from like this really intense, it's like a state of euphoria. Like I tell people, it's like being on cocaine and magic mushrooms. Like you feel like you can do anything. When you're you're manic, you have this heightened sense of self. Like you're so creative, you're like so sharp and on and fast and but what you don't realize is that you're having the time of your life, but everybody around you is a little bit you know, worried about you. The, the issue that I experienced was when one has a heightened sustained period of mania, it's not going to end well. It's like a motor that keeps going even though it's run out of oil. It sounds like you were like very unsupervised in Amsterdam. Totally. I didn't know anyone there, and I just had a little apartment and um, made a bunch of friends, but... Everyone just kind of knew me as like the weird, talkative American. It's almost like you went out of your way to make yourself the like sort of mysterious, misunderstood, creative, outcast sort of on the fringes of the group or something. That's totally true. And prior to that, I had been in Rome for three months. And it was like a really magical time, but also really lonely. And um I think when I got to Amsterdam, it was very exciting because, you know, everybody spoke English, gay culture, like just just kind of the opposite of Rome. And so I, I kind of just felt like I was like this whole other person, you know? This sort of stinks of delusion to me. <laughs> People say it all the time, but are we ever really a whole other person from one day to another? Again, as an artist, it's easy to kind of identify with that path of insanity, rebellion, strange behavior, you know, I, I'm different, kind of like deal with it. And so I think there is a kind of a freedom in playing that role. And uh, also at that age, I think you're building that identity, right? Like we go out, we sort of find scenarios that are going to support the ideas that we have about ourselves or something. So living totally. alone in Amsterdam, making a zine is like, you were like, oh, I'm nailing it. Totally. And and that's what made the, the return to reality so challenging because, of course, that's not a sustainable identity or life. But in the midst of it, before I really knew what was going on, like I just felt like, oh, I'm feeling so good in this place. This This must be the place. I belong here. You know, I'm on the right path, which is why I threw my passport away. I just said, you know, I'm just going to stay here forever. And... A lot of it was a like very severe chemical imbalance in my brain, which like felt fantastic, right? 
I'm sure this is my own ignorance, but I've never heard someone talk about their mania this way. Like they loved the feeling of it. In fact, listening to Peter's story, there are so many similarities with the way that people talk about taking drugs. But this was a natural burst of brain chemicals, fueling the fire of Peter's greatest fantasies. Would you call yourself a confrontational person? Only, truly only when I was like very manic and very like, like if you said something I didn't agree with, I would shut it down right away. I think in normal day-to-day life, I'm very, I'm upfront, but I wouldn't say I'm confrontational. Like I'm very direct, but I wouldn't get in your face about something um, unless I felt like I had to. So we're back in Minnesota, living with your parents, taking some meds, getting back on track. Yeah, trying to get back on track. And um, it just sucked because, you know, it's like imagine getting sober after being on like the best drugs you've ever been on. I mean, I was like literally trying to research ways to like have another manic episode because I wanted to get back to that feeling. And, you know, that led to like, I'm not taking the meds, all sorts of shit. How did the idea of taking the meds affect the ideas that you had about yourself? Did you think oh. that it, you're less creative, you're less, yeah. I'm less myself, et cetera? Yeah, like, I think that's a journey for anyone who is diagnosed and is told, hey, you might need to take this, you know, for the rest of your life. Uh, it's very easy to equate that with like, you're taking away what makes me special and you're taking away my creativity and I'm going to be a zombie. And I think when you're 23, it's like, it feels like a a death sentence on your creative career, right? You think I'm just going to feel flat and dull and fat and not sexual for like forever. The delusion that everything is going to be forever. Amsterdam was going to be forever. And now being a medication zombie is going to be forever. This is a delusion that I suffer from daily. And for me, I think it's a symptom of a core feeling that drives me, which is fear. Fear of being stuck in something that I hate, or fear that something that I love will one day have to end. Lately, I've been trying to rewrite that story, trying to replace my fear with curiosity. Basically what happened was I tried to make it work in Minneapolis for a few months. I started working at this restaurant and I just, I just hated it. And um, I had to take some quiz the first day and I failed and I basically got fired. And I was just like, you know, fuck you guys. And I was walking home, feeling really down and out. Down and out in the suffocating embrace of reality, enveloping him in the streets of downtown Minneapolis. And there was a suitcase on the side of the road. It was like from a yard sale. And it just had a post-it on it that said free. Free. Like the way Peter wanted to feel like the way he had felt just a few months before in Amsterdam. Free. The same price that he had sold his suit to that homeless guy for, and his really expensive camera to that other homeless guy. Free like his passport and the zine where he photocopied his heart. It was like free was baked into Peter's DNA. And here it was again, this time finding him at the end of a very long, very bad day. He stared at the suitcase, rereading four letters. This wasn't accidental trash for him to pass on his way back to a life that he didn't want to live. This suitcase was a symbol, something greater. It was an invitation revealing his path, and it was screaming its message loud and clear, scribbled carelessly on a post-it note. Free, like the only item left on a to-do list that was being sent to him, straight from the universe. So I took this suitcase and like the one pair of clothes I had and got on the Greyhound and I just went to Chicago the next day. 
I just was going to stay with a friend until I found a place. I had a sense of community there. I had a psychiatrist, a therapist all set up. I had, oh. you know, found some version of the meds that kind of made me feel normal-ish. So I felt like functional. And um, three weeks after that, I was hit by a car on my bicycle. Hit by a car, not wearing a helmet. Hit by a cab, landed on my head, subdural hematoma in the hospital for like 10 days, blood in the brain, no health insurance, like $700,000 in medical bills, like just, just craziness. I came to and I vomited all over my friend and um, they were asking me, you know, what year is it? Who is the president? And I, and I couldn't tell them. Um, there was a lawsuit. The people in the back of the cab were like, yeah, he blew the stop sign. The cab driver had blown the stop sign. I had some mild retrograde amnesia afterwards. Like I woke up in the hospital and I was like, I don't remember what happened. And I just remember being like, really? Is this like, is this the next chapter of life? And um, because of everything that had transpired before, I just kind of came out of it feeling very lucky and very fortunate and reminded that I had this great kind of support network around me. Wait a minute. Did any part of you waking up in the hospital, <laughs> did any small part of you go, man, I'm really fucking doing it. You know, I am so this creative, mysterious, misunderstood outcast on the fringes of society. <laughs> Look at I, me in this hospital bed. And listen to me hunting around for the ego, completely missing the point. It was almost the opposite where I had this very like poor me moment. Like really, like I just fucking like went through all this shit and now I have to like, but you know, at the end of the day, they said I was very lucky two inches the other way. I could have, you know, been dead. So instead of it being this like horrible thing that like ruined my return, it was like the opposite where I was like, man, I'm really lucky. Man, I've got good friends. Man, it could have been way worse. Now, this is the kind of impact that can make you feel like a whole other person. And, um, you know, like a couple years later, I got a bunch of money, but it, it was a it was a complicated order. After the break, will Peter be able to manage his own mania in a healthy way? Probably not. The story's only about halfway over. Stay tuned. 143 means I love you. If you have love for the show and you want to support us, you can send us $1.43 to at your necessary delusion on Venmo. Because it always feels like love. If you are finding yourself connecting with today's episode and you want to share some thoughts, you can leave us a message at our voicemail. The number is 323-540-4540. And keep listening to hear yourself in future episodes. We are back. Having just barely walked away from his bike accident without any permanent injuries, Peter has found a new sense of gratitude for his life, which he is living independently in Chicago. But yeah, so then everything was cool. And the whole time I'm on the meds, I stay on the meds. I think I went off them once in the hopes of having an episode. You know, I was a good um, patient and I stayed in therapy and all that stuff. And uh, it was like the winter-ish of 2009. I was about 27 and I just started to feel like really manic again, but I was on all this medication and I decided I wasn't gonna tell anyone because it, it's like a drug, right? Like I felt really good. And I'm like, I got this. 
How was that manifesting itself, the the manic feeling? So to be honest, like everything just feels better. It's like every texture, it's like more sensual. Every song is like more emotional. Like you feel it in your your body and, and your mind. It's like euphoria, man. You just feel so good. And um, you can kind of like talk to anyone and like just jump into a conversation and like rattle off a random fact from some movie and everyone's like oh wow you're, you're so cool and like they might not even be acting that way but it's like everyone around you is like a mirror to your own ego think about that nugget earth monster most of us have our moments looking in that mirror without the chemical imbalance you just get these little like energy boosts from normal stuff but it's feeling good and then it starts to kind of get worse in that i'm waking up really early and being like kind of wired like i just did a bunch of coke like i gotta do all this stuff today and then compared to last time right where it was just really like i just feel good i started to kind of have these thoughts and hear and see things that weren't actually there such as I lived above this 4 a.m. bar, and at the time, there was this film out that Tom Ford had directed called A Single Man, and I just was, like, obsessed with it. I saw it in the theater, like, ten times. I was, like, determined to meet Tom Ford and tell him how much the film meant to me, and it's it's a beautiful film. I've watched it many times since in a sane state of mind, and it's an incredible piece of art. But I was convinced that it, like, had some secret message, you know, specifically for me. And um, I was at home, and... The music downstairs at the club was always like, and I started to hear the phrase, a single man, over and over again. A single man, a single man, a single man, like me, I'm a single man. I'm the single man. And I became convinced that I needed to go down to this club because they were playing this special song, you know, just for me. So I, I went down there and kind of acted like I was like a hotshot. And I, I cringe even saying these words aloud. I just kind of like strutted in and went over to the DJ and said hi and just like acted like I knew everyone. And like, I don't know, I think I had a suit on. And a nice suit is such a strong physical prop to support his delusion. And I realized that they, they weren't actually playing this song and nobody was trying to lure me down to this nightclub, but I was so convinced. And then somehow I got it in my head that, oh no, this is the wrong spot. I'm actually supposed to be at this bar on Clark Street and that's where I'm meeting Tom Ford. If you were wondering about the mission of this delusion, he was out on the town in his suit to meet Tom Ford, the famous film director. And why shouldn't he be? After seeing a single man so many times and fantasizing about meeting Tom Ford in person, eventually his delusion, aided in big part by his manic episode, just decided it was time. He didn't just want to meet Tom Ford. He was in fact scheduled to meet Tom Ford tonight at a bar on Clark Street. Delusion! And it doesn't make any sense when I explain it, but in the moment it makes like total sense, right? Right. So he went to the other bar. And I was convinced that Tom Ford was going to meet me at this bar. And I told the bartender, I have a very important meeting. Um, I'm waiting for Mr. Ford. And this bartender is like, you know, whatever, you crazy whoever. Um, I'll just be sitting at this table until he shows up. And I sit at this bar for like four or five hours. Sipping expensive cocktails, adjusting his cufflinks, chatting with strangers like he's known them for years, and always keeping one eye on the door waiting for Mr. Ford. It's the very end of the night, the lights are coming up, and it's like a little flicker of reality comes in. Oh, he's not actually coming. 
in that moment, the delusion is you believe you're in a movie and everything is happening for your benefit. So he walked home, drunk and confused, his eyes subconsciously scanning the tree lawn for signs from the universe. Um, but then the next day, there's a new delusion, which is, okay, now I got to meet Christopher Nolan at the top of the John Hancock because I'm going to play the Riddler in the new Batman movie. Delusion. Back to one. We're taking it from the top. Peter's delusion that he's meeting a famous director at a bar. Take two. And action. The mania always seemed to occur in the cold months. So this is like December leading into now it's probably February, March. Um, and I told a friend I have to go to the top of the John Hancock to meet, you know, Christopher Nolan. And she's kind of like, what the hell are you talking about? And anyone who doesn't get on board with your reality, you just like shut them out. So I would be like, whatever, I'll call you later. It's a Chicago. skyscraper downtown Chicago that has this bar on the 96th floor. And um, of course, the night in question that I go, it's like a really foggy night. And the building has these green lights on. So out the window, all you see is green fog everywhere. And in my mind, that's like perfect because that's what the opening of the movie is going to look like. His subconscious could not have chosen any better place to be fake cast as the Riddler in the new Batman movie. So this would have been post-Dark Knight, pre-Dark Knight Rises. So, And you're like very much admiring these movies? Yeah, you know, they were filmed in Chicago. But I also was like, I would be great as the Riddler. I don't know. I don't know why the Riddler, but... Um, you look Riddler-like. I mean, certainly it's not a stretch. You're tall. You're you're sort of like sinister, but in a, a sinister yeah. looking, but in a fun way. There is something devious about Peter's smile. In his eyes, there is a spirit that dances. His head is shaved down around the sides, and the top is dyed blonde and messy. I can easily imagine him in a lime green jumpsuit with a matching fedora, purple question mark, and green cane. And apparently... So can Peter. It's like when you have a dream and your dream is all these little parts of your day and they take on significance in the dream. So like in a manic state, maybe I had just watched The Dark Knight or maybe it was the foggy green light, but it's like a little switch goes off and then you, you jump into this whole narrative. Like I'm the star, we're meeting here, I'm already late. And all of this is like, you're taking cabs everywhere, buying expensive drinks, like pretending you're kind of someone that you're not, you know, like, oh, I'm a movie star. Um, I'm about to be the Riddler. Right, like, don't you know who I am? Again, a lot of this hits home for me. I mean, certainly in my 20s, it did not take a manic episode to have me joyriding in expensive cabs around New York City in my cool guy costume, spending money I didn't have, acting like I was about to be famous. Anybody? Just Peter? Cool. So do you go to the John Hancock building by yourself? Well, I went there a few times under similar pretenses. Because much like a drug addict, he would repeat the ritual in order to recreate the feeling, always nestled deeply in his delusion, of course. So this specific time, unbeknownst to me, my really good friend, who I really love and trust, had contacted my father. So my father was actually on his way to Chicago at the time to come and talk to me. And I was going to go. Um, I didn't know this, but I was about to be hospitalized, right? I realize how scary this story is, how serious the condition is. And I can only hope that you feel as much empathy for Peter as I do while you listen to this. But 
I want to pause and talk about how silly it is, too. How this chemical imbalance can push Peter to order overpriced cocktails on the 96th floor while he waits for a famous film director, who he's never met, to show up and offer him a role in the new Batman movie without auditioning. <laughs> it is sad and scary, but it's also pretty fucking awesome because we are all fragile, ridiculous earth monsters full of wild fantasies and natural chemicals. I'm like wearing a suit. I'm drinking a sidecar. It's like kind of my drink. A sidecar is a tart, dry cocktail served with cognac, orange liqueur, lemon juice, and traditionally a sugared rim. It came out of New Orleans sometime during World War I. Peter is a well-cultured earth monster. So he and his friends sit at the bar on the 96th floor with the confidence of a supervillain, scanning the room for Christopher Nolan to arrive. When who does he see? Tom Ford. <laughs> no, he doesn't see anyone. I don't see him anywhere. And to be totally honest, I don't like exactly remember. You know, you're bipolar and you have these manic episodes, which is a chemical imbalance, right? It's mm -hmm. medical. But what it does is it plays on the ideas that you have about yourself. Yeah. 100% because I, I don't want to be the Riddler, but I do... Yes, you did. You wanted to be the Riddler. And you were and you know what? We all know you were wearing some swanky ass suit that sort of made you look like the Riddler. Yeah, I think I had like a green, like a green collared shirt. But I just remember my friend was like, you know, he's not here. Um <laughs> let's go. Then it was like another story about how I had an art show somewhere. His friend thought fast and told a new story that played right into Peter's unconscious bias. We have to go to your art show across town. People are going to be bidding on your work and we're late. Perfect. Christopher Nolan who? We got in a cab and my dear, dear friend kind of said to the driver, don't listen to him. And they actually drove me to the ER where my dad met me. And then I, of course, was like so angry and you betrayed me and I'm not going to get to this art show. You kind of just jump from like one white lie to the next and your friends are scared, right? Because you're not connected to reality, but you're not thinking about how your actions affect anyone else. Your only concern is I'm the Riddler or Tom Ford's waiting. And um, <laughs> it sounds so crazy, but it, it feels so real that like nobody could tell me otherwise, you know, and, and I would just sh shut anyone down and start yelling at them like a real, like a real jerk. Raise your hand if you've ever acted like a real jerk. How much of this sounds familiar to you? I know I'm not alone in this because it doesn't take a chemical imbalance to produce delusional thinking or an unconscious bias. It's just part of being an earth monster. Outside the hospital, the cab, my dad's there. Oh, and my sister was there too. It is like, I'm gonna listen to her. It was kind of like the moment of the no shoes and no socks in the streets of Amsterdam where I was like, oh, like my dad's here, my sister's here. That's like interesting. So it, it made me kind of stop. And then I didn't wanna go inside and I was, you know, crying and I just have to go to my art show. I don't even know what kind of art show this was, but um, right. <laughs> be because, because they were there, I was kind of willing to play along, if you will. Um, but I was kind of like, screw you guys. I'm taking my meds and I'm feeling great and you can't make this feeling go away. And they took him inside and he was admitted. I was in this really creepy psych ward um, that used to be like an old prison. <clears throat> like the Riddler or 
Maybe it was the Joker. I think it was the Riddler. You know, they they take your possessions and they put you in like a smock. And then I was just in this room with a little window and there was a security woman and her name was Geneva. And I, I made up a song about her and I was just singing this song for hours and hours. And I got some new meds and they set me free and, you know, things were kind of okay. But then it happened again, like a month later. It was like it kind of kept ramping up. And again, like a real drug addict, I didn't want to tell anyone because it felt so good. And that time it was a lot worse. And I engaged in some really bad behavior. I, I'm not a drug user. I took some drugs. I had un, unprotected sex. Like I really was kind of like, it's almost like when you're really manic, you, there's a sense of in, invincibility. And it, it just felt a lot like kind of scarier and, and darker, but I didn't really know how to get out of it. And then when I got out of the hospital the second time. He went back to Minnesota, more medication, an outpatient program, ups and downs, and then back to Chicago to try again. Because despite it all, you are resilient, Earth Monster, and no matter what happens, you continue to get up and try again. Now this is like May, and I became very paranoid and very self-conscious, and I suddenly thought that everybody just knew me as the crazy guy, right? Because that's how he was thinking about himself. And everywhere I went, I started to think that people were kind of like, oh, that's him. And, you know, they probably weren't. But I went through a period of days where I just didn't want to leave the house. Um, I called up my dad and I said, you know, I think I need to come home. I'm, I'm kind of scared. Like, I just felt fearful. And then I just was really depressed. And like a couple of weeks later, I decided, and this is the opposite of mania. When you're depressed, things make sense too, right? I just remember thinking like, oh, it would be easier if I just didn't exist because then nobody would have to like worry about me. So I made this very like conscious choice to like take my own life. And I, it was like a very like specific plan. And, um, you know, I took a bunch of pills and thankfully it, it didn't work. And then I was in the hospital again. And that was a different kind of bottoming out and moment of clarity where I thought, man, like it sucks that. I could feel that this was the only option. But at that time I had tried and been on so many different kinds of medications and just everyone has an opinion about your self-care, your mental health, you know, so many doctors and people and it was just exhausting. And in that moment, you know, and I would never get to that place again, it just felt easier to just, let's just shut it all down. And then my sister, the nurse again, came to see me and um, the doctor wanted me to have ECT which is electroconvulsive treatment, also known as shock therapy. And I just was like, I'm not doing that. Like I've seen One Flew with the Cuckoo's Nest and Wrecking for a Dream. Like, again, everything's a movie, right? I know how this ends. And my sister just said, if there's any chance it could do any good, like, will you just do it for me? Will you try it? And, um, you know, at the time I thought, well, God, like, I don't think things can get any worse, right? Like, I just went from like a few days ago not wanting to exist. So like, could this be worse than that? So then I had ECT and it was really fucking scary. And um, we'll talk about it over a drink sometime. But like a lot of people, again, have a lot of opinions about that kind of stuff. And um, yeah. I can only speak to my own personal experience, but it definitely helped me to kind of reset and get better. But it's not something I've ever really talked about because it's I don't think it's a taboo subject, but it's not like something you bring up on a first date. And I, I don't know anyone else that's had it done. I know it is less 
barbaric and more common. But, you know, there's like a storyline on Mad Men where Pete Campbell's crush, his husband finds out she's having an affair. And so it essentially gives her a bunch of ECT to brainwash her. And that is something that was done back in the day. So a lot of different methods to contain the illness. Can you tell me a specific difference between your mentality before the ECT and after the ECT? I think in general, afterwards, if I'm being really honest, I never really had any real severe, severe depression or mania ever again. I think I was 27. So after, let's say, four years of a lot of ups and downs, I feel very lucky. I know a lot of people can't hold jobs down, maintain relationships, pay the bills. I would say after the ECT, uh, it was more even keel. And I didn't feel as sort of helpless at times or a desire to be manic, a desire to take my own life. I never really went to either extreme in such a way again. Peter, I don't want to dig deeper than you feel comfortable about sharing. Um, oh, you can ask me anything, Matt. When you were doing the the ECT, did you do multiple treatments? Were you Are you conscious for all of these? I did, and I wasn't. So the scariest part is that, you know, they put you under, and I hate needles, right? So you're strapped down, and they stick a big needle in your vein and they tell you to count down from 100. When they put these, you know, nodes on the side of your head, because basically what they're doing is they're making your brain have a seizure or your body have a seizure or whatever, seizure. And then you just wake up and you're like in a wheelchair in this like shitty waiting room where they make you eat a muffin and the Price is Right is playing and you have to like sit there for 30 minutes. But I had a series of treatments over the course of the summer, I think 15 and yeah, it was really uh, scary. And I think my biggest fear was like, what if I just like all my memories get like wiped away? Because um, I think it was Dukakis's wife wrote a book about it. I think it's called like Rape of the Soul, where she basically said like she lost all her memory. So yeah, it was very scary. And it was something that I didn't really want to talk about with anyone because I, I felt a lot of shame for what I had both put my family through and just that I was kind of this like, you know, I didn't get the role as the Riddler. Um, Right. I don't know. I don't know. It was just kind of, it was tough, but I'm also grateful because I feel like it really did help me personally. And again, I'm not saying it's what's right for anyone kind of turned my life around, you know? Yeah. At 29, he went back to school and finished his degree. And he's thoughtful now about crafting a healthy reality for himself. My big thing that I sort of take away from you a lot of times, or I'm just so impressed by is your rigorous routine and your rigorous morning schedule. I can see it on Instagram. I can see it in your behavior. You do your morning pages, you exercise. There's a meditation routine that's in place. Yeah, it's... Uh, you put in the work. And those are all things that like, again, pre-pandemic, like one would never have time for. Like, I don't have 15 minutes to meditate. And now it's like, I just do it every day and I, I built it into my routine. It doesn't really change anything, but it makes you more able to kind of, I don't know, like respond versus react and sort of accept all the hypocrisies of life and like, just keep going. Just keep going. He subscribes to the ass and chair idea these days. Writers write every day. And he feels like he's doing the best writing of his life. I've been kicking around this idea for a novel, which is very much about my life. It's a fictionalized version about estranged siblings, but it's about a bipolar guy who loses everything and has to kind of start over. And I always wanted to write it, but I just felt like there was never time or it, who would read it and would it be any good. And so 
last April, I was sitting here at my little desk where I do my morning pages. And I thought, you know, I got nowhere to go. I got all day. Uh, let's just like, let's just crank it out. And so I wrote a rough draft in about 30 days. And then like, I've heard other people talk about this, like, it just kind of like, just all came out very quickly and it didn't feel like very hard and it also didn't feel like it was me sometimes like I kind of just showed up on the page for exercise he dances in a parking lot on top of a hill by his house alone in his headphones he stares out at the view and dances harder than a 14 year old at a rave he posts time-lapse videos of himself doing it on Instagram completely sped up his tall thin frame jumping and kicking in a chaotic pattern around the asphalt his arms waving and punching to the beat You've never seen such joyful exercise. He's free. He works one of those very well-paying waiter jobs in Hollywood. You work in a place where you're around a lot of celebrities now. Well, a very famous director was staying at the recently, and I waited on him several nights in a row. And I would never say, oh my God, I mean, I just love you, right? It's just like, what would you like for dinner? And um, the last night he was there, I said something and made him laugh. And he said, you know, what is your first name? And I said in my mind, oh my gosh, are you gonna ask me if I wanna be in your next movie? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you definitely wait on people and you think, God, this person could just literally whisk me away from my life in this moment. And I could just be Celebrity X's personal assistant or adapt this person's memoir and they could just write me a blank check. But it's like the emperor's new clothes because there's like a line that you can't cross. Of course. But um, yeah, when you're there, you're kind of living in a, a version of the fantasy sometimes. So there is kind of an interesting sort of full circle moment for me there. But um, I told my therapist at the end of the day, it's like of all the jobs I've had and all the places I've worked, I will say I have a feeling that something will come out of it in a way, you know, some of them remember you and someday somewhere down the line, it might be worthwhile, but who knows? I want to thank Peter for his story today and for opening my eyes to some of the nuance of what it can mean to be manic or bipolar. Peter, you certainly know how to tell a compelling story, and I hope you will come back to continue the conversation in future episodes. Thank you for being here with me today, Earth Monster. If you have love for the show and you want to support us, you can write us a review on Apple iTunes. That's the Purple Podcast app. Or send us 143 on Venmo at Your Necessary Delusion. I'm always looking for new stories, so if you have a necessary delusion of your own and you want to share it, you can set up a time to record with me over video chat by emailing us at yournecessarydelusion at gmail.com. Or leave us a message at our voicemail. Here's the number one more time. 323-540-4540. We will be back next week with more epic everyday stories of success and redemption. Until next time. Say